Hello and welcome to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Coming up, we'll look at the generation that's never had it so easy compared to the kids today. Municipalities in 2019 are being urged to clean up their books and their accounting acts. We'll tell you why Calgary gets a failing financial grade and what some cities did to get into the Institute's good books. Plus, a preview to the federal budget 2019. We welcome C.D. Howe Institute President and CEO Bill Robson. Bill, welcome to the preview episode of the podcast. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you. Podcasting is something that is sort of a, a sleeper hit, it seems. We had the Podcast Institute recently report that one in four Canadians are monthly listeners to a podcast. Well, I think it's a very good way of spending uh, what otherwise might be a time stuck in commute. Uh, I'm delighted that they're as popular as they are, uh, and uh, as long as people aren't using them to get to sleep at night, then it's all good. <laughs> I suppose it's our job to make sure that this doesn't put them to sleep. There are very good uh, podcasts and specialty things for getting to sleep at night. With any luck, this will be the thing you listen to in the morning to get you excited. In the last year, those who said that they uh, had started listening to podcasts in just the past year listened to, on average, three, almost four and those who have been listening for years, five years or more, listen to as many as eight. It almost feels like this is replacing radio. Well, there's a lot of good product out there, and it's a great additional channel for people to hear about some of the interesting things that are going on in the world, including research and including public policy research. I was fascinated by your intergenerational fairness research report. Uh, you asked the question, will our kids live better than we do? And I suppose depending on the age of the kid, the answer is not so much. Well, it's an I, if, if you ask me the question, like absolute big picture, what are their living standards going to be like, all the goods and services that they'll have, I'd say the chances are pretty good that they will live better than we do, just as we live better than our parents and grandparents and so on, going back to, you don't have to go back very many generations to see people living in circumstances that today would we would consider appalling. So I think that the prospects are quite bright when you think of the underlying things that drive living standards up. But one of the things that we've not been paying attention to is how we are going to treat them in a fiscal sense. It, if you compare the package of goods and services that uh, our parents received, for example, compared to the taxes they paid, and then you think about the complementary situation for younger people today, it's not good. And what often surprises me, if you go to an audience of older people and you ask them, do you think our children and grandchildren will live better than we do, they are often quite pessimistic about it. They'll A lot of them, will, more will put up their hands uh, to say no, uh, they don't think that they will. Uh, live better, then we'll say, yes, they do. And then it's so tempting to kind of shout at them like, well, so what are you doing about it? Because many of the reasons that that we would worry about their living standards are because we're passing a lot of bills forward for things like health care, uh, public pensions, and so on. As it was pointed out in the report, baby boomers and their children will fare well in the, the base case scenario, you know, those born between the 50s and, and the 90s. The grandkids of the baby boomers, not necessarily. And a lot of that has to do with that population aging in this country and that it's, it's an acceleration. So we're in a scenario where it looks like um, the kids of the future may find themselves paying for the benefits of the present. That's right. If you look at the current configuration of taxes and programs, you might say, how is it that the situation of younger people today and, and say, the, the newborn baby tomorrow uh, could be so bad? Uh, because there's no 
a politician or anybody else who's going around saying we're going to be raising income taxes or the GST or something in, in the years to come. Uh, but what the demographic uh, situation is doing is it's going to force some of those things on us. There are a lot of liabilities out there. Some of them are formal. I mean, we all know uh, about government debts. Uh, some people are paying attention to things like public sector pensions. But what's also important is some of these implicit promises. If you think of the healthcare system, if you think of hospital and doctor services that are run through Medicare as a kind of implicit contract with the population, what people are kind of saying is, we're going to continue to deliver the same goods and services that we do to you today in the future for the same cost in taxes. That can't work because there will be far more older people who want those services relative to the number of younger people who are paying a lot of the taxes. So something has got to give, and that's what this report is pointing out. It's going to be a tougher situation for the younger people. And that report points out that there are a, a whole series of variables that will change the, the future financial outlook of those children. But perhaps the biggest variable that we need to focus on, as you, you suggest, healthcare. Healthcare, yeah, healthcare is the very big one. Um, and it's partly because as people get older, they will tend to need more healthcare services. That's very straightforward. It's an unfortunate fact of life, but um, it's it's uh, one of the investments that we're making that's that's cre- that's contributing to longevity. So there's a good news story underneath all that. Um, but when you think about certain types of things like uh, drug benefits, for example, that begin at age 65 or other age-specific things, just as with a lot of the pensions that are getting into some financial trouble, we ought to be thinking about ways of kind of moving that, moving that up because people are not just living longer, they're living healthier for longer. So there are some quite specific things where you can see that the system is tweaked towards older people. Other things are a little harder to deal with. Um, Long-term care, for example, there's going to be a lot of demand for that. People haven't really thought about how to finance that. But I think that in some areas, uh, including long-term care, what we should be thinking about doing is public uh, insurance systems like with the Canada Pension Plan, get a little bit more money set aside now. And then in the longer term, when many more people require this service, it'll be possible for them to uh, draw down that kitty as we do with the Canada Pension Plan. And there's time to do that yet because the the day when the really heavy demand for these services is going to be coming from the baby boomers and their kids, that's still a fair way off. So there are adjustments that we can make. Um, but in general, you know, we, we need to be looking at all these things because there are a lot of these forces that are all kind of piling up on top of each other. So you can't just tweak one or two and say, okay, we've solved the problem. You've really got to be looking at a variety of things that are making the outlook for the younger people today a bit grim. So a millennial will end up paying 16% more in tax. Their burden will be 16% greater than their own children. Again, based upon that base case scenario of we've got a a modest increase in in interest rates that add to our debt burdens, uh, taxes tied to health care and other issues as well, one of the solutions to help sort of narrow that gap and ensure that there is fairness across those generations has been tied to the labor market. And it's your suggestion that it's very valuable to bring an immigrant population into this country, put them to work, but you can't just put the immigrant kids to work. It has to be across all uh, age brackets. Well, one of the one of the things about immigration that I uh, have often found uh, disappointing is that people will talk about it as though it solves the demographic problem. And... Uh, 
even even ministers and, and people who ought to know better have talked about it as though it's some kind of a fountain of youth. I think immigration is good for the economy. Uh, it's good for Canada generally. Um, but the one thing that it won't do is solve that demographic problem because immigrants are a little younger on average than people who are already in the country, but not that much. And the numbers that we're talking about just don't make that big a difference. So if you um, think immigration is going to solve our problem and you don't do things about how long people are working, if you don't do things about maybe pre-funding some health care uh, costs that you know are coming down the road, um, these other things that we ought to be doing anyway, then Canada won't even be as attractive a place to immigrate to. So immigration helps at the margin, but it doesn't solve the problem. And the things that we ought to be doing by way of uh, fixing pension pressures, healthcare, the things we've been talking about, we should do them anyway. And if we do, uh, Canada will be a more attractive place to come to as an immigrant. And also, uh, maybe a few of the Canadians who might otherwise have been thinking of leaving uh, will stay. And that's really helpful as well. You get the sense that we sort of saw a lot of this... um coming up along the horizon line. I know back in 1997, we had made some changes to the CPP in this country, and Quebec did as well. In an effort to address this imbalance, did we get it right? Well, I think we did get it right in a very important sense, and you kind of touched on it already, that we did anything. Look around the world, and countries are having horrible problems with their social security systems. Right south of the border, there's a massive problem that they simply aren't addressing at all. In Canada, we did something uniquely foresightful, uh, just about, uh, in pre-funding a little bit of the Canada and the Quebec pension plans. So just to elaborate a bit on what you said, the projections were that if we continued to pay the benefits that afternoon with contributions coming in that morning as we had been doing, that the cost of the contributions was going to go up roughly by triple. And the benefit package that people would be getting for those contributions didn't change. So it's a very good example of the sort of intergenerational unfairness that gets highlighted in this paper. The answer to that, or at least the approach that the government of the day took, uh, and this was something that we'd been advocating at the C.D. Howe Institute, I have a paper I like to wave in the air from time to time, was to say in advance of that big ramp up in costs, let's get the contribution rate up to a level that we can sustain indefinitely. We don't know for sure that 9.9% is going to be sustainable indefinitely, but it certainly did uh, even out a lot of that intergenerational unfairness. Uh, It is something that very few other countries in the world did, so it stands out as a major accomplishment. Paul Martin deserves credit that I don't think he ever really got for such a major move. And it's a template potentially for some other things as well. I mentioned already long-term care. Uh, People are talking about pharmacare, but I worry that pharmacare right now, the idea is let's just make a whole lot more promises as happened in Ontario recently and we'll worry about financing them later. That's quite irresponsible. If you do have a big new expensive drug program, you know that there are going to be future costs. So think about putting something aside a little extra in the short term. And we now have some models for how that can work. And you'll be able to weather that uh, uh, that demographic storm a lot more easily if you've prepared in that way, as we did with CPP. I can imagine it could be a lot worse for Canada. There are other countries, the, the Nordic countries, Japan, they have a, a massive generational issue. Uh, are you confident that we're addressing it here in Canada so that we don't find ourselves in a similar situation as them? 
I think that in Canada, we have done some things right, and the Canada and the Quebec pension plan reforms do stand out as a major accomplishment. Um, when you look at government worker pensions, that is an area that is a disaster in many parts of the world, including in the United States. And in Canada, it, the situation isn't healthy by any means. The assets that those plans hold are not uh, sufficient to cover their liabilities, and there are some accounting issues that sort of obscure that fact. But again, these are questions, if, you, if we're comparing ourselves to what's happening around the rest of the world, Canada is in a uh, pretty favorable position. The challenge for Canada is that we had a relatively large baby boom, and then the birth rate dropped off quite quickly afterwards. So we started off, uh, if you go back 15 years, Canada was a relatively young country, but we are getting old quickly. In most of the European countries, it happened a lot more slowly. So for Canada, the, uh, the transition's abrupt. And that's the unique challenge for us. We are aging faster than other countries. And so the urgency of getting ahead of these things is just that much greater. And of course, you know, being a relatively young country, we didn't tend to think of ourselves as being in the camp that needed to do something. It's like, you know, when you're young and everything seems to be working great, uh, you don't have an easy time imagining what it'll be uh, like to be a little older when maybe uh, the knees and the hips don't feel quite the same way. And so for Canada as a country, we need to appreciate that we are going through a very stressful period now, and we have to address it vigorously if we don't want to be looking back as old people sometimes do saying, you know, if I'd known I was going to live this long, why didn't I take better care of myself when I was young? Oh, youth wasted on the young. Indeed. As we talk about the importance of keeping a close eye on the finances, federally speaking, it seems to me, at least by the letter grades you gave most of the municipalities in 2018, that there is almost no true transparency in how our big cities are actually managing their finances. That's true. And I find it a bit odd uh, that we are lagging behind so badly at the municipal level. Um, if you go back a couple of decades, the federal and provincial governments had financial accountability that was also in, a, in, in pretty rough shape. And one of the things that we've focused on, both looking at the federal and provincial governments and at the municipal governments, is what might seem to a lot of people like a, a kind of a crazy question to have to ask at all. And that is, when you're looking at the budget at the beginning of the year, can you compare it to what the uh, results are that they publish at the end of the year? If you're in a company, if you're doing, say, a household budget just on, on your own, you would naturally say, okay, well, where were we at the end of the last year? What's the plan for this year? And what will the result be if, if we achieve that plan? Weirdly, at the municipal level, that is almost never the case. The budgets that they publish at the beginning of the year don't match uh, what they've reported for the end of the year. And when you get to the end of the year, the, you know, for, for which that budget was, you're going to have a hard time then saying, well, did we hit our targets or not? Because the numbers in the budget just don't match. This is a problem for councillors uh, because a lot of them uh, may have you know, some numeracy and they're certainly motivated, they care about these things, but if the very first task you have is to try and decipher these numbers that just don't match, uh, then you're not going to get very far. And I think it's a problem for the people who would like to be doing a better job at that level. So we're trying to encourage the cities just at, at an absolute minimum 
publish a budget that you can reconcile with your financial statements at the end of the year. Then there's a whole lot more questions to ask about, well, did you hit your targets? Did you overspend? Did you underspend? And why? And what can we do about it? But if you can't even make sense of the numbers in the first place, it's not surprising that when you look at what happens at the municipal level, the results really are not at all, I think, what most people would expect. And 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 just to uh, make one of the most obvious points, at the beginning of every year, there is a panic about balancing the budget. Are we going to run a deficit? Are we going to have to have these big property tax uh, hikes or service cuts? At the end of the year, city after city after city, and for Canadian cities as a whole, they run big surpluses. Uh, that's a nice thing, but it's it's so different from what you would expect from the debate around budget time. So there's a big disconnect there. And if you're paying a counselor whose job it is to figure out the numbers and they can't figure it out, what hope does the average citizen who wants to ensure that their government is using their tax dollars wisely, what, what hope do they have of being able to de- decipher all the data? It's very hard to do. We've had contact since we started to do these reports from taxpayer groups and other citizen groups across the country, including some who said, well, could you look at our city? We're, we're trying to expand the coverage, but you sort of naturally go for the larger population centers first uh, because they are having this frustration as well. They would like to participate in the budget debate. Uh, Some may be advocates for one cause or another. Others are concerned about the use of their tax money. And over and over again, what they find is that you look at the budget documents and it's very difficult to make any sense of them at all. One of the problems that is uh, uh, right across the country, you'll find this, is that the capital budgets and the operating budgets of the cities are presented separately. And so it's very difficult even to get a handle on things like uh, what are the maintenance costs of the roads, what are the maintenance costs keeping up the sewers and and the drinking water and so on, because your capital, uh, you know, most of us, if if you're a private company uh, and if you're a, a sophisticated household where you're thinking about, well, paying down the mortgage and so on, you're looking at all these things together. You've got your revenue, you've got your expenses. Uh, at the end of the year, you hope your net worth goes up. Um, and at the municipal level, when you look at the budgets, you can't even do answer a simple question like that. It shocked me that a municipal government, by and large, would be unable to say this infrastructure project or any given investments, say they're building a, a new community center and there's a user fee associated with that, that they can't figure out when we put money into something, are we getting money out of it? Are we actually getting what we thought we were going to get when we made that investment in the first place? It's hard to do if you don't budget capital in in the same way that, uh, say, a business would, where you're thinking if an asset is going to last 30 years, first of all, I don't want to look at the expense like it's all going to be in the first year. That doesn't make sense. I mean, there's you're, you, might, you might spend cash, but you're going to have an asset. Uh, and so then everything looks very expensive up front if you conceive of it that way, which is what happens at this municipal level. What that also means is that they will tend to front load the financing. That's why you have such big development charges and other upfront costs for capital projects, which I think discourage cities from uh, investing in some of the infrastructure that they should. But then the flip side of that is everything looks very expensive up front later on you're not seeing the ongoing costs in your budget of maintaining it. And ultimately, of course, things will wear out. And when you get to the end of their useful lives, you're going to want to have anticipated in the budget that you're going to need to replace the bridge or you're going to need to put down a a new surface on the road. So it has this perverse effect of making things look expensive up front 
which discourages investment but causes them to you know try and overfinance what they do do and then you get neglect uh, further down the road so it just doesn't make a lot of sense and the funny thing is that in the financial statements that they publish at the end of the year they do it right so even though they're doing it right in the financial statements at budget time, they're doing it wrong. And it's it, it's it's weird. When you come to the situation cold, you'd say, like, why, why does this happen? And then you get into these explanations of, well, we always did it that way. So Calgary registered the largest year-over-year decline in budget clarity? There, we're looking at a number of things in, in this municipal financial report. And I've really focused very hard on what, for a lot of cities, is 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 the worst feature that they simply present a budget that's on a different accounting basis than the financial results. Uh, but there are other things that we look at as well. Uh, we look at the timeliness of the budget presentation. There's a big difference between uh, voting money uh, before you spend it versus voting something where you've already made the commitments and maybe even started to spend the money. Um, the publishing of the financial results also, the timeliness of that matters. Uh, the question of how easy it is for a person to locate the key numbers. Page 78 of 101 pages for Calgary. They buried the important facts at the end. Well, you see this in some surprising places. Uh, There are provincial governments that publish their uh, key numbers right at the beginning. If you're a naive, uh, you know, motivated and and numerate, but not necessarily expert person, you turn a page or two and there are the key numbers in front of you. The federal government in its budget, page 300 and something. So, you know, the example of the senior governments in this respect isn't necessarily great as well. Uh, but at the municipal level, often it's PowerPoint decks. You'll have to find slide 50-something. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Why make it so hard? Everybody knows that the really interesting thing is, what's your revenue? What's your expense? What's the bottom line? Are you get, is, it, is it in the red or in the black? Put it up front. Why make everybody work so hard? They call it burying the lead. Burying the lead. It's exactly, and maybe, and, and when you think of it that way, I mean, in journalism, and certainly when we're thinking about trying to get uh, uh, messages out here at the CD Hounds, dude, it's a bad thing to do. Sometimes in the public sector, you suspect it's not an accident. Let's look ahead to the shadow federal budget you're working on for 2019. What is the biggest issue as you see it for the feds when it comes to crunching the numbers for the uh, upcoming fiscal year? Well, since we've just been talking about budget clarity and accountability, I'll mention a couple of things that aren't necessarily right in the headlines, but I mentioned already uh, that the feds have tended to bury their key numbers late in the budget. I think they should put them up front. Uh, The feds, uh, as they present numbers to uh, MPs to actually vote the fiscal plan, present numbers that don't match the budget and don't match. So there there, there are things that are happening on the accountability front that the federal government should be fixing as well. Um, I do think that matters because a lot of MPs, like municipal councillors, they're motivated to do a good job. They want to know what's going on. But if they got a million things on their minds, they have all these political pressures, if you make it hard for them to find the numbers that matter... They're, by the time they found the numbers, they might feel like they did a good couple of hours' work and then it's on to the next thing. So the feds should be setting a better example there than they do. The big picture uh, nationally is that we have had an economy that's been growing at a pretty good rate. The whole world has been growing at a, a rate that's not bad. Um, we've seen central banks been raising their short-term interest rates. In Canada, unemployment is lower than ever since we've been measuring it. So this was the point in the cycle when the federal government ought to have been running a surplus. 
and preparing for the downturn that we think, we don't hope, but, uh, you know, it's reasonable to think that the steam is going out of the world economy. Uh, if you've been watching what's happening in stock markets uh, lately, as a lot of people have, there's a lot of nervousness out there. Uh, and with trade wars and other threats, uh, there's every reason to think that the world economy could be headed for a rough patch. So the first thing we'd like to see is uh, better fiscal stewardship at the bottom line. Feds have been tending to blow every extra dollar as it came in because the robust economy has been kicking off some extra revenue. What have they been doing? They haven't been banking any of that on the bottom line, getting back to surplus as they said that they would originally. They've been running these deficits and, and, and spending it all. So the budget has got to lay out a more reassuring fiscal track than that. That's the place I'd start. I can imagine, particularly in light of the trade wars that the U.S. president has launched against so many nations, including our own. Well, you have to worry that there's going to be some self-inflicted damage by the United States. Uh, Donald Trump's attitude towards trade, I think, is just uh, uh, very primitive, uh, to speak disparagingly of it. He seems to think that trade surpluses are what the U.S. has to engineer by blocking imports if necessary. Uh, that's, a, that's a ridiculous uh, way to come at it at all. Um, but since that's what he thinks, uh, we do have to watch out for the impact that that has on the world economy. If China slows down as a result of uh, damage from the United States, then that's going to affect our exports to China, ditto Europe. Uh, and the U.S. not only uh, blocks our exports, uh, the aluminum and steel tariffs are a really good example uh, of an area where then we react by putting our own safeguard tariffs up and suddenly our, our producers are hit by higher input costs as well. So these things tend to ricochet and cascade on top of each other. And it is a, when you see the markets react uh, well as they did recently to an alleviation of trade tension and badly as they often have recently to threats that it's going to get worse, I think that's a realistic assessment of what it means for the world economy and the Canadian economy. I know, Bill, you have to get to a roundtable luncheon. So last question to you would be, how do we mitigate the potential damage and the risks to the economy tied to what's going on south of the border? Well, the first thing that I would say is that you do want to have a little bit of that dry powder fiscally. If the economy goes into a downturn, there will be lots of pressures to spend and you don't want to be at that point cutting back. Um, I think that the other area that we have responded to but not enough is on the tax front. The U.S. tax reform complicated uh, some weird things, but the U.S. Uh, business tax system was quite uh, dilapidated and, and growth unfriendly before. And what they've now done is they've done a few things that make it more attractive to invest in the United States and more attractive to realize income in the United States. We've done a few things with the accelerated capital cost allowances, faster depreciation uh, for tax purposes. That was a, a good move because it was targeted and it was relatively easy to do. But in Canada, we have to be thinking about our tax rates. They are high. Uh, we've lost a competitive edge we used to have against the United States on the business side and on the personal side. It's expensive to live in Canada, and people uh, are willing to pay a certain price for the quality of life. That's a good thing. Um, but top talent does look south of the border, and uh, it's a populist thing to want to kick the rich in the slats. Um, but we ought to be uh, working a little harder to hold on to the sum of that top talent. So I would like to see the Canadian government a bit more focused on making Canada uh, more attractive uh, to live in for, for businesses uh, as well to invest in. And we'll be looking for some of that in the budget upcoming. 
Bill, thank you so much for being our first guest. It is my pleasure, and thank you for doing this. You're a great host. You know, we're going to be mining your Rolodex for guests for this podcast series, and we've got some pretty good names coming up. I look forward to it. I'll be a regular listener myself, and uh, there's a lot of good work that happens at the CD House that we're, we're fortunate that we're able to draw on a lot of talent. Uh, so I, I look forward to hearing some of those names, and uh, I hope other listeners will join us. Well, we'll let you get to that roundtable. Thank you so much. Thank you. Looking ahead to some of the other roundtable luncheons coming up at the CD Howe. Roundtable discussion on the 12th of February with the Honorable Nav Deep Baines, the Minister of Innovation, Science and Economic Development, will take place as we talk about building a nation of innovators. Then on the 25th, the Honorable Todd Smith, the Minister of Economic Development, Job Creation and Trade for the Government of Ontario, will be at the Institute to talk about what the province is doing to ensure that they are open for business. And as we get to the end of the month on the 26th of February, We'll talk about impact investing with Malcolm Burroughs, Adam Jagalewski, and Bill Young. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.